Good morning. Welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host again this morning. For the March edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy, we'll be talking with Dr. Tom Troland, who is an astronomer at the University of Kentucky. He's here using the Green Bank Telescope for a couple of weeks. He'll tell us what he's up to. So welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy, Tom. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Sue Ann. Tom, we're going to start out by um, asking you a little bit about what you're doing at the Green Bank Telescope, and hopefully we can widen that out a bit to say how that fits into the universe as a whole. (laughs) And we'll ask you a little bit also about uh, how you came to be interested in astronomy. But you're here visiting us right now uh, in Green Bank. Tell us why you're here. Well, I'm here for many reasons. Uh, First and foremost, because, of course, of the Green Bank Telescope, and I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm doing with that. Uh, Secondly, I have to say this is just a very beautiful place to be. It's calm, it's quiet, uh, it's scenic. I love being here, I love working here, I love doing astronomy here. But of course, the main reason why I'm here is because of the Green Bank Telescope, the GBT. And uh, like most projects in science, the details are fairly obscure. But the, the big picture is this. I'm trying to figure out, along with other astronomers, some things about how it is that stars form. Now, if you look around in the natural world, you see here in Green Bank Mountains, and you might ask yourself, well, how did they form? You'd have to ask a geologist to get the answer to that question, but if you look up in the sky, you see stars, and you can ask yourself, how did they form? And in essence, I'm using the Green Bank Telescope to help learn certain things about how stars form. So your research takes you into the the Milky Way. You're looking within our own galaxy. That's exactly right. If you go outside at night, certainly this area is a beautiful place to do that, a clear night, uh, no moon in the sky, stars are bright. You see that uh, band of faint light that arcs across the sky, that's called the Milky Way, and that's a huge system of billions of stars in which the sun is just one. And the studies that I'm doing are of material in this Milky Way. Now, Uh, Our own Milky Way galaxy, as it's called, is just one of billions, uncounted numbers of galaxies that exist in the universe, and many astronomers spend their time looking out beyond our own Milky Way to distances of even millions of light years, incomprehensible distances, but I take a closer approach, just right here in our own good old home, uh, the Milky Way. So, uh, tell us a little bit about what the current ideas are about how stars form. Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, First of all, I have to say, for me as an astronomer, it's fascinating to go outside at night, look up and see those points of light, and realize that I and my colleagues and other interested people here on this Earth know something about them. We know something about what the stars are like. We know something about how big they are, how hot they are. We know something about how old they are. And we also know something about how they formed. And to me, that's fascinating. Just as a, a geologist looks at a mountain and asks himself or herself, what forces caused that mountain to form? What forces brought that mountain into existence and made it look like it looks today? So astronomers have the same perspective with stars. And so we ask ourselves, how do stars form? And that's not just an academic question in some sense because, uh, you know, we live near a star. And that star formed at some time in the past. And we live on a planet that formed about the same time that star formed. So learning about how stars form in the sky is in some ways learning about, about our own origins. And the basic story, as we understand it now, is that out in space between the stars, uh, there are huge clouds of very cold gas. It's almost a vacuum out there, but not completely. 
And out there in, in that space, sometimes called interstellar space, because, well, it's between the stars, out in that interstellar space, these cold clouds of gas gradually fall together under their own weight. Just uh, gravity brings them together. And they become hotter and hotter and smaller and smaller and hotter and hotter. And after a period of time, and of course this takes millions of years, uh, you form one or more new stars. And around those stars, you form planets. And that's what happened, as far as we can tell, four and a half billion years ago and gave gave birth to uh, to our sun and to our planets and ultimately made ourselves possible here on this earth. Well, we live a pretty short lifespan compared to these millions and millions of years it takes to to do this according to current theory. How is it that you can know this this theory? Well, it's interesting. It's true. Uh, the process of star formation and the lifetimes of stars unfolds over a vastly longer period of time than, than human life scales, as you would imagine. Uh, the sun already four and a half billion years old, another five or six billion years to go. So if you ask, how can we understand how stars form? And beyond that, how can we understand how they live out their lives when we ourselves live for such a short time? Uh, you raise a very interesting question. And the analogy which comes to mind is this. Suppose uh, extraterrestrial travelers dropped in on the Earth one day and had, let's just say, one or two days to study hum the human race. So suppose in one or two days, extraterrestrials wanted to learn about the life cycles of human beings, how they're born, how they live, and how they die. Well, in one or two days, you wouldn't see that whole process unfold. But there's another technique they could use. They could look at different human beings and study how different human beings are, well, different. Some are taller, some are shorter. Uh, some speak a language, some can't, especially the smaller ones. These hypothetical extraterrestrials could, in principle, if they were smart enough, look at all uh, the different human beings in a certain part of the world, uh, some older, some younger, some just being born. They could even see pregnant women. And in a short time, in a, in a day or two, smart extraterrestrials could figure out the human life cycle, which itself takes place over a much longer period of time. Now, astronomers can do the same thing. We can't watch the cycle for a given star occur throughout, but we can look at lots of different stars, and we can look at lots of different places in the universe where we think stars are forming, or in particular in our galaxy. And so we can piece together the picture by looking at lots of different stars in different states of their lifetimes, lots of different places where stars are forming in our galaxy, and from that information, piece together what the full story would be from birth to death for a star. How does the Green Bank Telescope help you unravel this mystery? It doesn't really do a great job at looking at stars while they're shining in the sky. That's very true. That's very true, Sue Ann. The Green Bank Telescope allows us to study, among other things, the process of formation of stars. Because as I said, stars themselves form from these huge clouds of cold gas in space. They're sometimes referred to as interstellar clouds. And these cold clouds are, are as the name suggests, very cold, so that they don't emit light. You look up in the sky, you don't uh, see these clouds with your eyes. And even with an ordinary telescope, a so-called optical telescope, you, you would never see them. So what the Green Bank Telescope brings to this study is the ability to pick up faint radiation from these cold clouds that, because they're so cold, just emit no light. We wouldn't know these cold clouds that can form stars and planets even exist without radio telescopes like the Green Bank Telescope that allow us to uh, pick up faint radiation from this cold material, radiation which uh, is only radio radiation and not light. Okay. So what are you going to be looking for? You're, you're obviously going to be looking at these cold clouds. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Well, uh, a lot of people say, what's the big deal about sitting around looking at a bunch of cold clouds? But <laughs> I, I say it's, uh, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. <clears throat> In particular, the cold clouds that I'm looking at are clouds which have a certain amount of magnetism within them. Now, we all have some experience with magnetism. Uh, we know the Earth has a, a magnetic field, as it's called. And um, you have magnets on your refrigerator, so uh, you're familiar with that sort of thing. Well, it turns out there's also a certain amount of magnetism out in space, way out in space. And this magnetism is, first of all, extremely weak. It's perhaps a million times weaker than just the magnetism of the Earth right here on the ground. But nonetheless, out in space, the magnetism has an important effect because the magnetism in space can affect these clouds which are trying to fall together and form new stars. The, the process of gravity brings these cold interstellar clouds very slowly together and they heat up, as I said earlier, and they become, well, hotter and smaller and they form stars. But if there is enough magnetism within these clouds, then the magnetism can actually slow down or possibly in some cases prevent that process of forming new stars. So my goal and the goal of my collaborators is to figure out using techniques available with the Green Bank Telescope just how strong the magnetism is out there. We, we, we know it's weak, but is it really, really weak or is it just a little less than weak? How strong is that magnetism? And once we know that, we can figure out how important the magnetism in space is to, to the star formation process. Do you notice as you look out at these clouds in various parts of the Milky Way that the magnetic field or this magnetism varies from place to place? Or is the Milky Way like a just one big bar magnet that has a, a magnetic field around the whole thing? Well, that's an interesting question. People these days sometimes talk about diversity. If you like diversity, then uh, look in the Milky Way. It's very diverse. Everything in different parts of the Milky Way is different. Uh, if you consider this interstellar gas that I mentioned, the stuff between the stars in our Milky Way, in places it's hotter, in places it's cooler. In places, it's a little more bunched up together. In places, it's a little bit more diffuse. In some places, the magnetism is a bit stronger, although always weak. And in some other cases, it's a bit weaker. So uh, this type of study of magnetism in space requires that we observe, that we point to the Green Bank Telescope and other telescopes in lots of different directions. And the goal is to try to figure out how strong the magnetism is in, in different places in the galaxy. You're looking in a part of the galaxy called the halo. Can you describe for us the big picture of what the Milky Way looks like and what this halo is? Okay, that's a good question. As we look up in the sky, as I mentioned earlier, the Milky Way appears like a faint band of light across the sky on a good, clear, dark night. That band of light almost looks like a cloud of gas, but really it's the combined light of billions of stars that you just can't see individually with your eye. However, here's a suggestion. Some night, go out with a pair of binoculars and point those binoculars up into the sky, and you will see that the Milky Way is broken up uh, into countless stars. It's really a, it's a beautiful thing to see in this area with its dark skies. It's a beautiful place to go out and pick up a pair of binoculars and just look at the Milky Way and look at other parts of the sky. But what we see of the Milky Way, this faint band of light across the sky, is just part of a huge, as we call it, a galaxy. And a galaxy is just a huge city of stars, if you like, a huge system of billions of stars. And the shape of our galaxy, if we could see it from a huge distance away in, in space, the shape of our galaxy looks something like a, like a fried egg. That is to say, it's flat <laughs> with a, a bulge in the middle. That would be the egg yolk, but in the galaxy we call that the nucleus. And then around this egg yolk, around the nucleus, is what's called the disk of the galaxy, or the, if you like, the white of the uh, 
uh, of the egg. And then if you sprinkle pepper on it, those you, are the stars? If or? you put a little pepper on it, the only problem is the pepper is black, so that'd be more like black holes. Oh, right. uh, but uh, salt, I think, would be a better okay. bet. Salt, good idea, yeah. So put a lot of salt. If you're on a low-sodium diet, uh, don't do this experiment, but put a lot of salt on your egg, and now you have those little salt crystals representing the stars. That's exactly right. And the whole thing is turning around uh, like a giant top, flattened top, if you like. And most of the stars, including our own sun, lie in this disk of the galaxy, in the flat part. Not in the center, but in the flat part uh, outside. However, uh, the galaxy, although it's mostly flat, does have stuff above and below the egg yolk, if you like, above and below the egg white, above and below the disk of the galaxy. So this flat system of stars, uh, consisting primarily of the nucleus and the disk around it, this flat system of billions of stars also is enveloped, if you like, in, in, in a larger region where there is some material but less. And that larger material, which has kind of the shape of a, of a ball or a round or spherical shape in which the flat galaxy resides, that's called the halo of the galaxy. And up there in the halo, there is a bit of material, not too much. And the question is, where did this material come from? Is this material that has come from deep intergalactic space? Is the material that it was shot up, so to speak, from the galaxy and is on its way falling back down? Uh, we don't know, but that material in the halo is uh, material in particular that I'm studying in this particular project at this particular time with the, with the Green Bank Telescope. And again, the process, the, the purpose of the uh, observation is to try to figure out how much magnetism there is up there uh, in the halo of the galaxy, well above or below, if you like, the, the disk of the galaxy. Will you be able to tell if it's magnetic field related to the galaxy itself, do you think? Or? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the question is, that really is the fundamental question we're trying to ask, or trying to answer, really. Uh, is the magnetic field that we see way above the galaxy's disk, or way below it, somehow related to the magnetic field we see in the, in the galaxy? And the goal is, the ultimate goal is to try to understand, as I mentioned, whether this material uh, that lies above or below the galaxy is related to the galaxy itself in some way, or it's, whether it's come from very, very far away. Mm -hmm. You've been at this quest to study the magnetism in our galaxy for many years. That's a tough problem, isn't it? That's right. That's right. I've, uh, I've been coming to Green Bank for, for countless years. As a baby boomer, I always considered myself to be young and always defined age as being uh, uh, that age that's approximately 10 years or more older than my current age. But uh, nonetheless, I am not a young man. I first came to Green Bank in 1969, and I used the old 300-foot uh, telescope, which, of course, as we all know, is no longer among the living. And uh, that particular project was done in uh, working with some astronomers uh, at the University of Massachusetts. I was an undergraduate in that area at that time, and it had nothing to do with magnetism, but it was a fun project because we were looking at this, at this uh, type of object called pulsars. And pulsars, as you know, are, are these tiny little dead stars in space that send out pulses of radio waves like a, like a clock as they spin like tops in space. And pulsars have been studied here at Green Bank for, for many decades and are still widely studied by astronomers, although not by me here and other places. But I remember I was there. and This was back in the old days when, when you didn't have everything electronic, although there was plenty of electronics there, of course. But uh, you had something called a chart recorder, or a little uh, strip of paper on a roll, and a little needle that, uh, with a pen that wrote on the chart recorder and told you how the signal from the telescope was changing. And every second or so, when the telescope was pointed at one of these pulsars, you'd see a little blip on the chart recorder. 
and it was just fun to see. We had we wound up with pages and pages of chart records. All they might have looked boring to other people, but they were fascinating to me. Just these little blips every second or so, a little blip on the chart record. Each one of those blips, though, <clears throat> was a pulse of radiation from an object known as a neutron star spinning around about once per second with about the same mass as the sun or maybe more, but only about 20 miles in diameter. If you think about something having as much mass as the sun, but only about 20 miles in diameter, and spinning around once every second, sending out a, a beam of radiation each time it does so, that's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. And it's interesting, that study of pulsars is, is not the study of stellar birth, which is what I do today in some sense, but that's the study of, of stellar death. So you say death is a sad topic. Well, pulsars then should be a sad topic because they represent part, a small part of the study of stellar death. And that's what I was doing uh, as an undergraduate the first time I came here. That was, uh, was a long time ago. So you've been involved with stellar life cycles and stellar evolution since the very beginning. Well, yes, you could say uh, I'm into life cycles, uh, lifestyles, lifestyles of the rich and famous star, or something like that. Uh, yeah, that's true. I've, uh, I've done research uh, along with many of my colleagues on uh, sort of the beginnings and the ends of the, of the stellar life cycle. Well, since you uh, brought back your, your glory days in the, in the late 1960s in Green Bank, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in astronomy in the first place? <laughs> well, that's a good question, too. I, uh, I, like most people, I love to tell my story, the saga of Tom Trollin, which uh, not, it's not really a saga, but nonetheless is of interest to me. I, I, the short answer to the question of how I got interested in astronomy is my father. He was... My father was a high school science teacher, and he had his training in chemistry, but he had an interest in astronomy. So when I was a little kid, he kind of got me interested in astronomy. Uh, he even had a small telescope that I used to be able to look through, and we talked about astronomy, and I learned some things about astronomy. He never, you know, he never forced the topic on me in any way, but, um, but uh, he interested me in astronomy. And then I remember when I got to high school, uh, when I was a senior, I took a, my first formal course in astronomy. It was a one-semester course. It was new that year, and the instructor for that course was my father. And <laughs> I, uh, I remember that time very fondly because I remember he hadn't taught the course before. Of course, I hadn't taken it before, but as he was teaching the course, sometimes in class he'd make a mistake. He, uh, something he said might not be right, or maybe he derived some simple mathematical equation slightly wrongly. And that night we'd talk about it, and I'd say, Dad, I, I don't think that was right. <laughs> and the thing I always was so charmed by, my father was a charming man, the thing that I was so charmed by, he wasn't annoyed by this. He was, he was happy to talk about these things. And we had loads of discussions that time when I was a senior in high school and it was in his class. And uh, discussions at home about what had happened in class that day and, and things that went well and things that didn't or, or mostly went well, of course. But it was just a wonderful time in my life. It seemed initially that it would be awkward to have my own parent as a teacher, but he, he was. He was my first informal teacher of astronomy, and then later on, uh, my first formal teacher. And, of course, some years ago he died, as we all do. He lived to a ripe old age, but as I was cleaning out the house, I, uh, I found his grade book for the year, 1966, that I took astronomy with him, and I saved that grade book. It had all of his grades, not just for the astronomy class, but for his chemistry classes, and of course, I looked up my uh, my record, and sure enough, <laughs> I got an A in astronomy. <laughs> well, good. And I feel I deserved it. But not everybody was so lucky because I remember looking at uh, the grade book, and there was another student who, in the class who I vaguely recall, and he was not perhaps too academically talented. I'm sure he had countless talents, but academics were just not one of them. And he, he got a grade of F+. 
And I never had the opportunity to ask my father exactly what F-plus meant. It was it one of those sort of self-esteem Fs, uh, almost a passing grade or just what it meant. But anyway, I got an A, and I still retain today the, um, the grade book of my father from high school, 1966, when I took astronomy. But really, it, it was my father who helped to shape my interest in astronomy. And I sometimes go out to uh, local school groups or even in other parts of the U.S. and talk about astronomy, and I always like to honor the memory of my father because much of what I am today, I think, comes from the interest that he showed in me and the uh, information he gave me about astronomy and just the enthusiasm he had about such things. Not to mention that teachers very often don't get talked about in a, in a positive way. Well, that, and there you were saying, my father was a teacher and he inspired me to do what I do today. That's exactly true. He was, right, I, I think it's, it's important to recognize the importance of teachers. Uh, as I look at back at my career, illustrious or not, probably not, but in, in uh, kindergarten through high school and then on through college, obviously much of what I learned came through teachers, but I, I had some duds, of course, that's true in every profession, but I, I, um, I had some inspiring teachers, and my father was one of them. And I think he would have been an inspiring teacher to me even if he had not been my father, but he was my father, and that made it even better. So you're a professor of astronomy now. In addition to doing research, you teach yourself. That's right, I do. I, I work at the University of Kentucky. I'm a faculty member in the physics and astronomy department. And I have to tell you in that regard uh, about a very touching moment in my life, which happened about 15 years ago. My father, by that time, was uh, uh, quite old, uh, and he very rarely traveled. And uh, one day I called him up and said that my wife was planning a birthday party. And just to tell him about that, he said, would you mind if I came? Now, he was living at that time as he lived for much of his life up in Connecticut. I said, mind, I'm just thrilled. So he came down to the birthday party. He'd never traveled. Uh, he traveled a lot as a young person, but didn't travel uh, really at all as an older person. And so he flew down from uh, Connecticut to Kentucky, and he attended the birthday party. But the, the thing that I remember most was, upon my request, he attended my astronomy lecture class. Because at the University of Kentucky, I, I teach astronomy, oftentimes to large uh, groups of non-science majors. And, of course, uh, other times in my job, I'm here at the Green Bank Telescope or other places doing research. But I teach uh, as a part of, my, part of my responsibilities. I love teaching. And I remember that time uh, in 1988 when my father was in my class. He sat right up front. I introduced him. I said, uh, this man was my first, my first teacher of astronomy. I had this man for astronomy when I was a high school teacher. And, and then I said, and he's also my father. And the class was quite struck by this. I was astonished. There was sort of a hush that occurred in the class as I introduced him as my father. And uh, he sat there for the class, sat right up front, and he heard me. And I thought to myself, how touching this is for me to, to be the instructor of an astronomy class, to have my father there when going back many years in the past, it was just the opposite. I was in his class, and I was listening to him. So I, I think that was one of the most memorable moments in my life, that 50-minute time when my father, my first astronomy teacher, was there in my class at the University of Kentucky among 200 students listening to me and uh, realizing, I hope, that, that his inspiration had been what had put me up there in front of that class. You mentioned that you teach uh, astronomy oftentimes to students who aren't majoring in science. They're not going to go on and do astronomy or anything else in the science fields. How does that work for you? Do you find that astronomy is a is a good science topic for these folks? I think it is. I think astronomy is is perhaps among the very best sciences to intrigue people with science. For example, uh, being in a physics and astronomy department, I've realized that when I'm in social situations and someone asks me, what do I do for a living? If I say I'm a physicist, which I can say, 
uh, legitimately. Uh, often the response is, uh, oh, <laughs> uh, I had physics in high school or college, and it, uh, it was pretty bad. However, if I tell people I'm an astronomer, the response is usually quite, quite different. They say, oh, that's interesting. Sometimes it's true. They do confuse it with astrology and ask me to uh, cast their horoscope. I'm, of course, willing to do that for a very large <laughs> sum of money. Usually they don't take me up on it. But, um, but I think astronomy is an interest, interesting field, not only, of course, to me as an astronomer working in the field like other people here uh, at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, but it's a, it's a field which is of interest to a lot of people who are not otherwise science interested. And when I teach introductory astronomy at the University of Kentucky to non-science majors, I have two simple goals. One goal is to, is to show students that science is understandable to them, because many of these students have taken uh, science classes in the past and have already decided that science is simply incomprehensible. I'd like to give them the idea that science is understandable, and moreover, and even more important, I'd like to give them the idea that science is interesting. I don't expect that students in my class will be so fascinated by my lectures as if uh, that they will uh, decide to go into science, although perhaps in very rare cases that does happen. Uh, but what I like to, to think is that students coming out of my class at the end of the semester have developed an idea that, yes, science is interesting, and yes, I can understand some of this stuff. And the human race shares your laboratory because it's above all our heads. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Astronomy is a study of the universe, and um, the universe encompasses everything, including everything here on the Earth. So as I uh, sit back and then enjoy a good meal, I realize I'm eating something that's in the universe. So I can even think about food as being part of astronomy, although most astronomers don't. That's a stretch. That's a, a little, little bit, of, bit a of a stretch. Right. Even a rubber band, speaking of a stretch, is part of the universe, so could legitimately be considered to be part of astronomy. But uh, that's a real stretch. Do you find that your students have math anxiety? Is, is that why they fear science? I think math anxiety is part of it. You know, there's some people who teach astronomy, as I do, and they they say, well, astronomy is a, is a mathematical field, so we have to teach math to these students. We have to include math in the course, otherwise it's not real, real astronomy. But I say that's nonsense because I say students who come to my class, freshmen, sophomores, in some cases juniors and seniors in college, they've already decided whether they like math or not. And most of them in my class, because my class is largely non-science majors, have decided they don't. I'm not going to be able to change that attitude. Uh, so I teach astronomy in a way which is very conceptual. We do bring in a few simple ideas about mathematical ideas, a few simple mathematical ideas, proportions, and things like that. But in general, I try to teach astronomy in a way which does not uh, inflict pain on those who have this terrible fear of math. That's good. That's, that's probably why you're a, a popular professor, and I know that you are one. I'll brag on you a oh, little bit. Oh, thank you very much, Sue Ann. I've known Ta you, of course, for many years. <laughs> that's right. Tom comes to uh, Green Bank just about every year, every other year when we have teacher groups here and teaches them as well. So I know he's good. Well, thank you, Sue Ann. I have to say it's always been a pleasure. It's, it's fun uh, teaching astronomy to a large group of students uh, at the University of Kentucky, uh, many of whom, of course, have little interest in science, although perhaps after my class that's changed a little bit. But it's also fun to teach uh, astronomy and talk about astronomy to the smaller groups of teachers who often come here to uh, to the Greenback facility for professional development purposes. These uh, teachers, of course, are, are, are motivated to learn and uh, very interested in astronomy. So that's a fun thing to do, too. I, I've had a lot of fun, as you well know, with, uh, with these groups. That's right. And he gives them homework. It's not as if they don't have enough to do with all of their various other, other activities here, but 
Tom gives them homework, which they do. They do. That's right, because they're intimidated by me, as they should be. <laughs> I don't think so much. No, I have I have worked them a little bit. The, the programs which Sue Ann has organized and administered and been so much a part of for so many years are very intensive programs for high school teachers or uh, other teachers at the lower levels as well. These are very intensive programs for the teachers who come in and just work day and night. And uh, they do all kinds of things with the radio telescope. And uh, they have to listen to people like me. And then I give them homework. It's, uh, it's a hard program, but they, they seem to like it. At the end of it, it's all worthwhile. Somewhere in the middle, that there's a little despair, maybe, but they get through it. Well, they do get through, and the purpose of getting through it, of course, is for the famous graduation ceremony, which always occurs at the end, which is also a lot of fun, a few gag gifts, a few fun comments. Uh, and A good celebration of all the hard work. A good celebration afterwards of all the hard work. That's right. exactly right. Tom, thanks so much for being with us this morning, and good luck with your research. You have only just begun your two-week stay here in Green Bank, so you've got your hard work cut out for you That's as well. That's right. Another week and a half or so or two weeks here. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for inviting me on the program, Sue Ann, and I look forward to my remaining time here in this uh, beautiful place, Green Bank.